Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste catchphrase. That's our catchphrase, I suppose. Sure. My name is Whitney Seibold. I We're as a... bored with it as you are, honestly. <laughs> it, it was a mutation of something that was like decreed us early on. It's just sort of hanging on little little vestigial organ that we have no control over. Uh, my name is, <laughs> speaking of vestigial organs, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic of uh, no renown whatsoever, uh, but I'm here to give you my opinion on movies. And with me, as always, is my uh, far more charming and intelligent co-host, William, why don't you introduce yourself? Because I don't want to, Whitney. My name is William DeBiani. <laughs> I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Whitney is too nice to me and too mean to himself, but I love him dearly, and I wouldn't want to review movies without him. Oh. This week on Critically Reclaimed, we're, it's actually a pretty light week. For new releases, so we're going to really get into the muck. Surprisingly, we were so yeah. so busy catching up on other things. This isn't, isn't one of the nine film weeks. Yeah, so uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, reviewing the new release Thunder Force, the superhero comedy starring Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer on Netflix. We're reviewing the Academy Award nominee, The Man Who Sold His Skin. And uh, over on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we watch older movies. Since we're watching movies on streaming anyway, want to make sure we're catching up on the stuff one or both of us haven't seen before. Our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network voted for on HBO Max, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which I'm still surprised Whitney hasn't seen. No, I hadn't seen it. Yeah, you've uh, seen it now, but like... I've now seen it, yes. I have now seen as it. As of this and, week. Um, yeah, uh, when, when Fury Road came out, uh, that was, I think that was the first one I saw. That was the yeah. first Mad Max you'd ever seen? Yeah, and I still haven't seen the first one. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I saw the first one, wow. and then uh, at some point, somebody sort of pushed the Road Warrior into my hands. Yeah. Like, they insisted. It's like, you haven't seen the Road Warrior here, you have to watch it. Just, but I don't want to. No, you have to watch it tonight. Okay. So I, I begrudgingly watched the Road Warrior. Well, I'm so glad mm. your enthusiasm was so mighty we will talk about all the mad max movies to one degree or another but spend a lot of time talking about the third mad max movie which had a, a you know a really difficult production actually in a lot of ways and it came out really weird um so we'll talk about that film at the end of the episode before we get to that however we got to review these new flicks and one of these new flicks is on netflix hey. uh, we have the latest uh, ben i'm not sure if it's falcone or falcone uh, I've heard it both ways. Okay. Can't really say for sure. I mean, I for my whole life, people whose last name was F-A-L-C-O-N-E mm. uh, were pronounced Falcone, but then Batman Begins came out and they called him Carmine Falcone. Okay. And I'm like, I don't even know anymore. Uh, ben Falcone is uh, a collaborator with uh, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, they are also a married couple, and yeah. uh, but they've made several films together. I love you call him uh, a collaborator as if it's well, an accusation. I, I, I want... <laughs> In the case of many of their films, maybe so. Um, oh, ouch! I saw Tammy, and uh, I don't. I Tammy was an interesting, uh, an interesting film because it didn't really play like a comedy. It no. played sort of like a, a weird road drama, where a, it was like a, a Sundance film. Yeah, yeah. like it, 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 it was just like one 
slight gradient of color away from being a little bit more serious a film, but there were a lot of like bigger, more slapstick elements to it. Well, let's talk about it. Ben Falcone and Mm -hmm. Melissa McCarthy have made several movies together. Mm -hmm. Even when he's not directing, he ends up in a lot of her films, and I guess vice versa. Uh, Usually in like bit parts, too. Yeah, but uh, their first film that they made together in 2014 was a sort of a dramedy called Tammy, Mm -hmm. which is a road trip a movie with Melissa McCarthy and her alcoholic grandmother played by Susan Sarandon, who was playing against type. He was mm. doing sort of broadly comedic, which wasn't her shtick at the time. Um, still isn't, although she's done a little bit more of it here and there. Um, over the course of the road trip, they end up having to like, I think rob a convenience store or something. It ends up getting kind of off the rails. Um, at the time, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't very good, the pacing is way off, but I actually enjoyed the relationship between Melissa McCarthy and Susan Sarandon, and I thought that got me through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, their next film was a movie called The Boss, which is as close as we've gotten to a remake of Troop Beverly Hills, <laughs> as, as I think we're likely to get anytime soon. Uh, the gag is Melissa McCarthy is like a big billionaire corporate tycoon, uh, she's accused of insider trading and she loses everything. And uh, she ends up uh, teaming up with Kristen Bell to basically transform this like Girl Scout cookie business into something that could make a billion dollars, which leads to like this one giant like fight between like Girl Scout troops in the middle of the street and it turns into like the Warriors. And like that's the highlight of the movie. That part's actually kind of weird and funny. Um it's a movie that isn't quite sure what it wants to be, but Melissa McCarthy's really good in it, which is really I feel like you could say that about they could just rubber stamp almost any movie Melissa McCarthy is in just Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. is really good in it, regardless of whether mm-hmm. or not it's a good movie or not. Um Sometimes I think her her shtick is misemployed, yeah. like where they just sort of let her riff and it actually it isn't good for the character or the pacing or the comedy or anything to do with the movie. It's happened. Um, identity theft. Identity thief oh, God. is, identity is, is um, yeah, like well, identity thief. She's she's playing a, a cruel person. But th- but the film also kind of wants us to sympathize with exactly. her a little bit, so yeah, exactly. it, it, and that's, it's just all wrong. The thing about Melissa McCarthy as a performer is you're instantly on her side. Mm. She's incredibly likable and relatable. Even when she's being brash, you want to be on her side. But that isn't carte blanche to do anything. Like you couldn't have her be like a serial killer and be like ha, cuddly. Like no, you 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 can go too far. And I feel I, like Identity Thief love- was her yeah. just being vicious and bullying and brutal and it just mm. i you push too far i couldn't i couldn't and enjoy the, her anymore melissa mccarthy is one of uh, those comedians whose comedy is i think undercut by a little bit of viciousness mm. there's always a little bit of cruelty to her the characters she plays and that's Often. part of that's part of her shtick Often. so i would really love to see uh somebody give her a punch trunk love like somebody yeah. who can really roll with that viciousness, viciousness well, and let her play a legitimately vicious Un- uncomedic character. Well, one could argue that that was Can You Ever Forgive Me? It, which, and that's her best performance, Arguably, isn't it? Yeah. yes, I think so. Um, it's a movie it took me a little time to come around to just because it was so unpleasant for mm. her. But um, it, I think it's a movie that engages with how kind of terrible a human being she's being. That's a movie in which she plays a real-life mm. author who, in order to make ends meet, becomes a plagiarist. No, not uh, a plagiarist, a forger. Well, both, yeah. I guess. But, like, yeah. Um so uh, I do I do want to give some credit to there's a movie that she did with Ben Falcone that I think 
is gets a bum rap. I think it's actually the best thing she they've done together. Mm. Uh, it's a movie called Life of the Party. I didn't see Life of the Party either. Yeah, yeah it's actually she, she goes back to college. She goes back to college. Like she thinks her family life is going great. Her daughter goes off to college, and as soon as her daughter goes off to college, her husband like immediately dumps her. Mm. So she decides to go back to college as well in order to complete her degree and like pursue her own dreams. And she ends up uh, joining her daughter's frat and sorority. Yeah, sorry, they're all. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I I didn't I didn't go to one myself. I mixed them up. I apologize. But in any case, they go to they go to her sorority, mm. and the gag the, the gag isn't oh she's awful. The gag is she's great. And, Everyone likes well, the, being around her. The, the she's really likable. The daughter character is really embarrassed by that. Yeah, but even and, then, and it's resents not, that she's more popular. But it's not too bad though. It never like mm. pushes in the wrong direction. I actually find that movie very charming. I think that movie is actually, it's got its heart in the right place. It never goes too mean. Um, it, you know, can be mean for a moment, but it, it never loses you. Okay. Um, and I think that's their best work together. I think that's just the, the best sort of combination. That being said, I didn't see the movie they made last year called Super Intelligence. It got scathing reviews. Yeah, that's so, why I, I, I do my own reviews. I can't yeah, take their word uh, for that's, it. Yeah, that's all I can yeah, say is that yeah. a, a lot of... Uh, Critics, Life of the Party crit- did too, and I crit- liked that. Critics, one. I really admire Pandit, but yeah. you know, I I have enjoyed a lot of those films as well. Yeah. Uh, so here's their newest effort. It's a straight to. It's a Netflix film. It's yeah. uh, a genre film. It's a superhero movie. Superhero comedy uh, where uh, Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer play people who we get to see in flashback what happened to them uh, and how they met. But uh, to set up, give you the setup, it takes place in a world where. People were just spontaneously grew superpowers, but specifically people who had uh, brain chemistry predisposed to sociopathy. Yeah. Uh, so only sociopaths got superpowers. Which is actually, I got to be honest, mm. like, again, that's that's a little, if you, they don't go into it too much, and I'm glad, because there could be this whole, like, you know, uh, uh, sort of scapegoating mental health thing. But yeah. if you would just want to create a world in which only a few people have superpowers and they're all supervillains. Mm. You might have to ask yourself, well, geez, why would they all go into supervillainy? Well, because they're predisposed to being jerks. Or, or, like, you, yeah, or, or you could argue, like in that yeah. film Project Power, uh, yeah. which a film I really loved. That's a good film. Um, that if you have superpowers, you're going to be predisposed to crime. Yeah. Because that's actually, when you think about it, really the only practical application for a lot of the superpowers you see in comic books. And of course the old adage, power corrupts. Exactly. Exactly. And all all that. So they uh, live in a world where there aren't a lot of supervillains, but everyone with superpowers is a supervillain. And occasionally they'll just be like a horrible rampage or murder spree. And as a Mm. result, uh, Octavia Spencer's parents are killed when she's a young girl. Uh, she ends up deciding to dedicate her entire life to finding a way to fight the villains in this universe are called miscreants, whatever. Uh, it's and like the lingo. <laughs> everyone gets their own lingo. It's like coming up with your own vampire rules. You gotta, you gotta use it. Mm. Um, she wants to find a way to stop the miscreants, and she dedicates her life to science. Uh, the one friend she has in school is very, very nice, very, very fun, but also really tough. Mm. And she can beat up bullies who try to bully Octavia Spencer. Uh, eventually they have a falling out and now 20 years have passed. They're both in their late thirties, early forties. Octavia Spencer is now a billionaire sort of Lex Luthor type, but a good guy. And <laughs> Melissa McCarthy is just a work a day. Melissa mm. McCarthy type, you know, she's a bit, a bit brash, but very lovable. 
Yeah, she, she works in construction. She wears metal bands on her T-shirts. Yeah. Her, her musical taste doesn't run strictly toward metal, which I'm a little upset by, which they kind of yeah. roll with the metalhead persona a little bit more. Yeah, be consistent, I think. Uh, but yeah, their uh, high school reunion is coming up, which gives them an excuse to reunite. When uh, Melissa McCarthy visits Octavia Spencer in her, sh- her gleaming experimental science lab, she accidentally sits down on a chair and activates a superpower drug that injects itself into her face. And all of a sudden, she has to continue this battery of drugs in order to... So the drugs don't go to waste. Well, it's also that the they drugs, won't kill her. Yeah. Like oh, she basically, basically, she's got super strength drugs, but if she doesn't go through the complete process, it'll mm. just like rip her DNA apart. So she mm. has to commit to this. And Octavia Spencer, who had been planning to give herself superpowers, is frustrated because she was planning to give herself invisibility and strength. And they only have like enough of this for like... For one person. For one yeah. person. They're a little hazy on like why is this why can't you make more of this? Well, they, they can, but evidently it like requires five years to grow in the lab. Yeah. Like they can't still just weird sort of that you would only generate it one, spontaneously. In any case, so well, it, was, it was a test. They well, had to make it first. Well, in any case, uh, so Melissa McCarthy ends up getting super strength, and Octavia Spencer saves the invisibility serum for herself. And eventually, mm. after a very long training montage, which was admittedly rather funny, they decide to team up it's, and become it's, superheroes it's called Thunder Force. The third of the movie is just yeah. all of the training stuff. Well, and again, this is... I think Ben Falcone has a sense, and I know Melissa McCarthy would work with him because why wouldn't they work together? But uh, they have a sense that more than anything else, whatever the plot of the movie is, mm. I think the appeal of these films is we want to hang out with Melissa McCarthy. Well, and that, I do want to hang out with Melissa that's McCarthy. That's definitely uh, Ben Falcone's approach, and he will just let Melissa McCarthy kind of riff. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'll make a lot of just sort of aside jokes that are clearly not scripted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in I a, hope not. In a genre film <laughs> like uh, like Thunder Force, or to compare this uh, to Spy... Mm. Which is a mostly good movie. Uh, most Mostly good, but the biggest problem with Spy is the same problem with Thunder Force in that all of the riffing just stops the film dead. Yeah. And it it's not really all that funny. Mm. Uh, just Melissa McCarthy kind of making an ass of herself in these really kind of sed, stead situations. I feel Spy, which is a spy film, mm-hmm. and Thunder Force, which is a superhero film, these are films that need to be like scripted and plotted and paced in a certain way to, to function. I, they kind of and are. And I feel the, like the, the, the riffing and the comedy and the reworking the pacing of the movie to fit around all of these riffs that Melissa mm. McCarthy has come up with just kill the film. I, I, a part of me almost appreciates mm. that Falcone and Paul Feig, who can be really... Sometimes he can follow a script and it's beautiful. Sometimes he can be loose and it's beautiful. And sometimes his movie just gets away from him. Mm. Um, In the case of Falcone, he seems pretty committed to this breezy comedy style. And a lot of it, a lot of the sort of, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, A lot of the issue arises when we expect a movie about superheroes to have a certain pace. And to one extent... Or, or comedy films, for that matter. Fair enough. But like, but comedy can be... There are different kinds of comedy. Well, of course there are. There are comedies that are very believable. There are very comedies that are very madcap. There are comedies that are highly scripted. There are comedies that are incredibly conversational. And they can all work. Um, the contrast between a highly structured genre film and the kind of just easy breezy Ben Falcone style of filmmaking is occasionally funny. Okay. 
When it's not funny is when it stops for no reason whatsoever. For example, there's a scene where after Melissa McCarthy has gotten her super strength serum, uh, she meets Octavia Spencer's daughter and her daughter Mm. is wearing glasses and wearing suspenders. And Melissa McCarthy says, oh, she looks like Urkel. Mm. And everyone's like, who's Urkel? And Melissa McCarthy's like, you don't know who Urkel is? Mm. And this scene goes on for like a minute and a half. Just where she tries explains who Urkel is explain- and does her Urkel impersonation. Yeah, and- it's like, there's n- that's a 30-second joke at most. And you stretch that out for like at least 90, and it just mm. stops the movie dead. It would have been, been funny. There, there's a, a sort yeah. of a, a sort of sniveling lab assistant character mm. who keeps getting harmed in like superhero oh, yeah. testing. Tony, uh, yeah. Tony. Julia White should have played that character. That would have been fun. That would have been a good way to riff on that that bit. Maybe, but uh, maybe they tried. I don't know. Mm. But uh, yeah. but but that's but that's that's just an aside, mm. and that's the sort of thing that feels like that feels more like a blooper than it is like belong in the movie because it just kills the pacing. The thing that they do over and over again in Thunder Force, and it's funny for a while, and then you realize it's all the movie is going to be, <laughs> is they take the piss out of superhero movie tropes. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of piss in those tropes. Oh, yeah. And 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 we keep refilling it. Yeah. Like, seriously, like, all over, like, the superhero fights and the villain speeches and the blowing mm. things up. And it's just, they're all moments that we're familiar with every superhero movie. And, yeah, it, fine. You know? Like... Make a joke about them by all means, but if you make a joke about all of them, not just that they're funny, but if you basically take all the dramatic tension and energy out of all of them, like the bad guy is angry, so he's gonna kill a guy, okay, mm. and then it's like, oh damn it, that was the guy who's actually good at stuff. Now all we've got is Andrew, and Andrew's mm. really incompetent. Why couldn't you have killed Andrew? That's kind of funny for a second. We don't need two minutes of conversation with this Andrew guy. It stops being funny after a while, there and it doesn't a, get funnier over time. It just I think there was a, a boring. There's a cute callback to that bit later on, but it was funny because they cut it off. Yeah, it's like, oh, and we're going to do this bit. No, we aren't, and we're going to get into the action. Yeah, um, uh, Bobby Cannavale plays the mayor. He's running for re-election. Uh, uh, no, he's not the mayor. He's running for mayor. I said that. You said he's the mayor. Oh, sorry. He's he's running for mayor. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, he's in the middle middle of of election, uh, and. Also involved in the shenanigans is a super criminal played by Jason Bateman, who has he's called the Crab, and in the one bit that I found incredibly funny, he has crab arms. Yep, that's his whole shtick. His he's shtick. got crab arms. He has crab arms, and it's it's this wonderful little bit of absurdity in the middle of this yeah. otherwise kind of dead comedy. And he's dead serious about his crab <laughs> arms. He's not like he's not playing it up like an old timey like nineteen sixties Batman villain, which would have been funny. Although there is one old timey Batman villain thing he does. Which is whenever there's a fight and Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer are beating up all of his goons, he like steps to the side to let the, the other guys fight. And when he steps to the side, he sidewalks while holding his claws up and snipping them. <laughs> and that is always funny. That is always funny. Every single time he does, I will say this, I am not always a big Jason Bateman fan. Mm-hmm. But when he's funny, he is fucking funny, and he is fucking funny in this. He has exasperated deadpan down Pat. That's yeah. it. that's his bit. And when he's playing a guy with crab arms, that's incredibly valuable. He's he, You want to put crab arms on Jason Bateman. Mm. Like, there's some people, it's just like, you know, we, we don't need to put crab arms on Daniel Day-Lewis. Jason Bateman improved. <laughs> <laughs> improved by crab arms. Like, it's actually... And there's actually, like, Melissa McCarthy and Jason Bateman have, like... 
romantic tension, which is kind of funny. Like you don't see that like actually explored too much between heroes and villains. So there's actually a bit where they go on a date and they like they go bond to, over crab arms. Yeah, they, they go out to a seafood restaurant and like, why are you, you interested in me? I don't know. I've always loved the smell of Old Bay. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> you it's funny. Yeah, you, you wouldn't believe how many crab jokes they managed to put in there, and all of the crab jokes are gold. They're pretty damn funny. I I gotta like be honest, a, I was a little surprised. It was, remember, it was a real uh, treat when I first started watching uh, Futurama. Uh, one of the characters in that it's an animated show. One of the characters in that is is a lobster man. He's a crab yeah. monster, Doctor Zoidberg. Yeah, and I thought, okay, surely, surely there's not a lot of crab humor. The, I had no idea yeah. how wide the venue was for crustacean humor, but there it is. <laughs> and you know what? In Thunder Force, they found new crab gags. Yep. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? The superhero supervillain stuff. Not, some of it's funny, but it's not all. It's not mostly new. The, the crab stuff is really funny. The, the plot, a lot of the gags, I feel like I've seen in other locations, like recycled yeah. from other places. It's, and it's stuff we've seen before for the most mm. part. And the whole thing is now Octavia Spencer and Melissa McCarthy are doing it. And I will say this. Mm. I like both of them as performers. They're both wonderful performers. Mm. They're, they've got good chemistry together. Uh, and you want to see them do fun superhero stuff. Yeah, it's nice I, to I see. To... It's nice to see. Two women in their 40s being superheroes, getting to kick ass Mm -hmm. like superheroes, not just like, oh, it's funny because they look like, no, they're just they're good at this. And And, I actually do appreciate that. And and I'll say this. Not one joke at the expense of their bodies or their size. The closest that they come and it looks like Mm -hmm. it might be going there. There's a bit where they they have like a cool Lamborghini to like drive around and sell superhero stuff. But the joke is that Lamborghinis aren't comfortable. They're like way too low to the ground. They're really low and 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 there's not a lot of space You have trouble getting in and out of them and they have trouble getting in and out of them. I thought they were going there for a second, but it was just a Lamborghinis aren't that fun joke, which is actually a better joke. Mm. And good. So yeah, thank good, you for that. So, so good for them. They were they yeah. remain tasteful in, in on that front. Yeah, um, I appreciate that it's a, a story about friendship. I wish they were playing characters more than broad versions of themselves. Oh, yeah. Octavia Spencer is playing more of a character. She's yeah. actually acting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Melissa McCarthy were, were asked yeah. to do like play a role, like play this like mm. metalhead who hangs out at bars and drinks a lot of beer and you know actually has a lot of texture. And history to the mm. character that would have been a lot more interesting than I just agree. her doing her shtick. Uh, Melissa Leo is in this movie, mm. and I'm not sure why. She's an Academy Award just, winning just actor. Cast Melissa Leo, guess, but not? she's like the eighth lead, and she's just like <laughs> she's just she helps Octavia mm. Spencer out a little. And it's like you'd think like, oh, that's going to go somewhere, and like it does kind of for a second, but then it's just mm. no. She has nothing to do. She has nothing to. She doesn't say anything funny. She doesn't do anything particularly exciting. There's no mm. plot point with her that couldn't have been given to literally any other character. I'm not complaining. I'm glad Melissa Leo is getting work, but it's distracting because you expect her to really do something mm. because she's kind of a big deal for such a tiny role. And so that's not the end of the world. That's more of like a meta critique, but like it is weird. Yeah. It's like when you see Kevin Dunn in a movie like this. Yeah, he plays the diner owner. Yeah. I like Kevin Dunn. Yeah, that's but, what he does. He plays diner. That's the kind of role he'd play. Mm. Yeah. But like, if you saw like, oh, here's a guy who's a diner owner and he's played by, I don't know. Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. And he's only in like two scenes or he never really has anything to do. Mm. He'd be like, okay, it's cool that they got Daniel Day-Lewis, but why? Did he have like a cool scene that got cut or something? <laughs> it's like, it's like in those like, movies where like. He, um, he got crab arms. Well, it's like in Prometheus where like. 
Guy Pierce is in the movie, but he plays like a really old man under a lot of makeup. And you're like, why didn't you just get an old man? And then <laughs> he's an older actor. And then yeah. he found out there was like a scene at the beginning where he was supposed to be young and they just cut that out. So all they had was him in old age makeup. Just cast two actors. I know. Like, just cast know, two but different like, actors. But exactly my point. Like, so you're, you're, you're asking yourself, why is this? And the answer is on the cutting room floor. And it's just, it's a little distracting, but not the end of the world. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, my biggest problem with this movie is just pacing. I was with it for a while. I was actually like really enjoying the characters. I thought uh, they've had a good marriage of, you know, sort of relaxed, easygoing, friendly pacing with a little bit of superhero lore. And I was really with it until like there was this scene where they confront Bobby Cannavale and he reveals that he's been the bad guy all along and... And it's I'm not much like, of a spoiler. This the plot isn't. No, it's too, really too, too complex. It's another one where it's Bobby Cannavale's like in like a, he's he's in like one scene and you're like oh well he's got to be important later and sure enough he is. Melissa Leo kind of isn't, but Bobby Cannavale is. I'm watching the movie and I'm like okay so this is great okay cool so we're setting up the third act this is kind of nice and then I had to pause it for a second to get a glass of water and then I look and I'm like why is there an hour left in this movie <laughs> yeah go we're on. it's it, we're it, coming to a conclusion it needs to be 85 minutes it's it's like nearly two hours 110 it's yeah, it's yeah. Just too much in it, it just doesn't need it's it's too much of a good thing but it's still too much I can't finish it mm. you know like it's just like oh god do I have to finish all of my beats I like beats, but uh, 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 slice. Yeah, the, the this idea that the funny character actor can pull this off when they're not playing a funny character is an issue. Mm. Uh, I, I I feel like so too many of uh, the Ben Falcone, uh, Melissa McCarthy movies depend too much on her persona rather than her skill as an actress. Mm -hmm. And she's actually a very good actress. And I think, I I think uh, they would do well to come up with more complex, different, different types of characters for her to play. Yeah. It feels like she's coasting a little here and Mm -hmm. that, and that's if anyone can coast and get away with it, Melissa McCarthy is one of them. But, and if the movie were more tightly constructed, fine. Mm -hmm. But if you ask us to spend all this time, we just, we need a little bit more. Um, but still, I mostly liked it. I actually okay. was mostly charmed by it. When it works, it works really, really well. And when it's bad, it's just too long, which is the, not the worst thing you can say about mm-hmm. anything. Like, I wasn't like mad at the movie. I was just like, like, like we just could have wrapped this up by now. <laughs> like, whatever, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I I, I kind of dug it. No, no, I didn't love I, it, but I kind of dug it. I, I, it's it's not intolerable, but I didn't didn't quite dig it. That's fair. Uh, well, did you dig the man who sold his skin, which I assume um, is about tattooing? Uh, indeed it is. <gasps> um, I was actually right for once. <laughs> it was um, supposed to be a joke. I was going to make a Dennis Rodman reference, and it'd be no, like, I, like I, I, tattooing Pepsi on his I arm. I kind of dug it. I kind of dug okay. it. Um, this is a film from Tunisia, oh. and this is about a Syrian refugee who uh, we see in... in uh, in a little prologue, he uh, wants to propose to his girlfriend mm. and he's on a train and he wants to propose and he says, we'll, we'll start, we'll start a love revolution. We can do whatever we want. He used the word revolution. He's immediately arrested oh, and he has to flee the country God. <laughs> and leaving his girlfriend behind with uh, a, a suitor sort of uh, taking his place. And uh, he goes to Lebanon where he, uh, 
or excuse me, he, he goes to Lebanon and then he's courted by a rich artist from Brussels who ends up going to Belgium mm-hmm. uh, to become a part of this elaborate art installation. This uh, Belgian artist ha- uh, is going to pay him a good deal of money to tattoo a travel visa over his entire back. Mm. So he's essentially always traveling with his visa. They can't take his papers away, can't lose his papers, he has it on his back. And nice. the comment that the artist is trying to make is, it's easier actually to, tri- and he because he has this on his back, he's now sort of an art commodity, and he his body now has value. Mm. He's essentially sold himself uh, into slavery, essentially, mm. to this rich artist who's just going to bring him around to museums and have him sit on a bench and show off his tattoo. And of course, the comment is, it's easier to move commodities than it is to move people. So why don't we turn this person into a commodity? And uh, the film has a few very obvious open speeches about the commodification of immigrants mm. and how we tend to see them as products and you know things that we can churn into a system built for rich people. Uh, so yeah, there's class on all of this. And of course, uh, our main character gets so upset with being a commodity and just sort of sitting still in museums, he gets bored that he starts getting up off of the chair and introducing himself to people and trying to behave like a celebrity. But then the artwork on his back is sold, like rented out or sold to different people. So he has to kind of go around and sit and reach pe- people's houses and just kind of sit there and keep his head down at all times. That's part of it. He has to look down at his lap while people look at his back. Mm -hmm. Um, And meanwhile, he's losing touch with his girlfriend who has married the suitor and is secretly trying to communicate with her unbeknownst to her husband. Wow. Uh, It's, it's a pretty exciting premise. It, It moves really quick. And I think it has a lot of important things to say about this commodification process. So much so, it'll just say them. There's no subtlety to this. It's all just in dialogue. Uh, And he ends up uh, kind of flirting with Monica Bellucci, who is in this movie, as Mm. sort of the, I think she's the artist's agent. She's uh, connected with the artist on a business level. Uh, And uh, it it does a few kind of twisty double-back things. Uh, You think it's going to end really, really badly, and then it kind of pulls a little... uh, pulls a, a fast one on you and kind of gives you pulls a, a little bit of a, a more uh, it feels like fitting ending. It feels to, like to there's a couple drama. of ways that could go. That could either go just yeah. horribly sad and mm. absolutely tragic and how well, it makes you think, or it could, it could, well, the yeah. first, the first shot of the movie is two people uh, in a museum with the white gloves, very carefully carrying a frame of a very valuable work. And we see that it's his back like in the frame. So we know something kind yeah. of go- something gory is going to happen eventually. Dear God. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's an image. So yeah, it, it's an image. And uh, I do think, I do think it could have, it feels a little bit adolescent though. Like they're, they're going for a little bit more of a, a thriller vibe. They rather came up than, with this shock value idea. Yeah. And that's kind of where they stopped. Like there, there's, there's all deeper ideas that could have been explored here. They could have expanded yeah. the idea a little bit more. What, what happens when somebody else gets a tattoo and becomes a, a more valuable commodity than him? What happens to him then? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when the visa on his back expires? Do they have to keep updating it? <laughs> there is a, a really uh, great bit where um, they have to put up a sign that they have to restore the work of, the work of art when he gets a zit on his back. Oh. <laughs> like a really big one too. It's really, so there we get a nice Dr. Pimple Popper scene. So it sounds uh, kind of, I gotta be honest here. Just the basic premise mm. of what happens when you turn a person into a work of art mm. and how 
like because we think of this in sort of this RoboCop terms, you know, like in how like a company owns a person. Yeah, you know? like oh, but they're gonna like fight back and the, rebel. Those, but then like the Truman a, Show as well. Yeah, but like if you think about it, like kind of the 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 weirdest parts would be that person being treated like a commodity, and like that mm. element is kind of fascinating, but. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds more like a Tales from the Crypt story in a lot of ways. And I swear I've seen something like this in Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. I was just thinking of the the Tim Roth episode where he would kill somebody and paint their corpse and some crazy rich art collector would buy things off of him. Mm. I mean, there was a... um... Oh, and the big big twist in that episode is he was was dating somebody and she uh, had some sort of heart condition. Uh Uh-huh. And the uh, and they needed a special like a specialist to fly in to operate on her, and it was really really expensive. So he said, "Well, I need to make art real fast." So he goes out into the parking lot and kills a guy and uses his blood to paint something real fast and sells it to this art collector guy. And it turns out the guy he paint he killed to paint that was the specialist who was going to operate on. Oh no! So yeah. Okay, that's funny. Um... All right. So in the end, is it is what do you think? Is it positive? It's good. I again, I wish it had sort of engaged with its ideas on a little bit, mm. little bit more of a mature level. But I did enjoy watching it, and it is engaging, and it does bring up interesting questions and has some some pretty good conversations. Okay. Well, uh, I, hmm. short. I'm not used to having <laughs> not having like six movies to review. <laughs> uh, so let's review these films on the critically acclaimed scale uh, once again. If you're new or need a refresher. We review films on a scale of C- minus to C+, where the lowest you can get is a C-, minus. that's below average. That's everything from we just don't recommend it to the worst thing ever made. Then uh, most films are a C. C's average. Mm. Like, it's fine. Like, it's good but never great, or it's got a mixture of good and bad. And then there's a C+, plus, which is above average, which is we either we genuinely recommend it, and everything up until literally we'll call it the best movie ever made. Mm. Uh, Whitney, where does The Man Who Sold His yeah. Skin land it's it's a c but it's a high c okay. it's it's not a classic but i i do think uh you wouldn't do well didn't you wouldn't do yourself harm to watch this one yeah. uh and uh thunder force thunder Force. uh apologies but it is a c minus okay. uh, it is kind of disposable it's far too long yeah uh but if you are gonna see it hang on for the crab jokes because those are all funny the crab jokes do make it mm. uh i i'm i'm a i'm a little more charmed by you mm. i agree with all your points it's too long. I think uh, uh, the best thing that could happen to this movie is uh, a- an editor who, <laughs> who has a pair of scissors and isn't afraid to use them. Mm. Um, plenty of material out there for special features, YouTube clips, whatever you want to do. Uh, you know, well, you want to do like a long montage after the credits, you knock yourself out. But the movie itself could stand to be tighter. And if it was a little tighter, I'd call it a confidence C plus. Um, it's a, a little affable and insubstantial, but the cast is really good. Uh, but even so, the cast is good enough. I'm just going to give it a C. Okay. Just a slightly high C, like not just middle of the road C, just you know upper echelon C. Um, if you like Melissa McCarthy and superhero comedies, do not shy away from it. Uh, but if you're looking for comedy gold, mm-hmm. uh, you will find some silver. <laughs> and that's that's that has some value, but it's not great. Comedy brass. It's not, it's not what you were looking for, but um, yeah, I, I again, it's a shame it's not a little better because it's very close. But mm. I, I did like it more than you. All right. Well then, <laughs> well, why don't we hit the post-apocalypse? Yeah, I'm I'm bummed out that we 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 actually did, went with Thunder Force first because it's such a great like. Can't we get beyond Thunder Force? And it turns out mm. we can, and we're here with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mm. And uh, 
again, this is the streaming club. You can vote for future episodes of the streaming club at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And uh, this time, all of our options uh, were sci-fi fantasy films on HBO Max. And you picked, mm-hmm. our patrons, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the third film in the Mad Max series. Um, Whitney, again, you haven't seen the original Mad Max and you're not a huge fan, mm-hmm. so... Let me give you a bit of a primer. Let's get up to mm. where we are with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. The original Mad Max, 1979. One of the most successful independent films ever. It was a low-budget Australian thriller car chase movie starring a then-unknown Mel Gibson in a, mo- in a movie that more or less instantly made him a star. Uh, it took a while for him to become a big star, but he became, like, name above the title right away after this. Mm. Um The interesting thing about the original Mad Max is that although we tend to associate the Mad Max franchise with the post-apocalyptic desert landscape Mm. full of scavengers and people fighting over natural resources, the original Mad Max isn't post-apocalyptic. It's actually mid-apocalyptic. It's actually about the downfall of society, like that last gasp between we still have a society, like at the beginning of the movie we still have society, and at the end of the movie we don't. Uh And it's about that. Oh, that sounds interesting. It's actually really cool. I think it's a bum rap. It's considered like the worst of the series. I actually disagree with that. Uh, But it's still an interesting flick. Uh, Max Rakatansky, which is one of the great movie names. It's like right up there with like all the names in like the Philadelphia story. Like C.K. Dexter Haven (laughs) meets Max Rakatansky. Um, Max has a wife and a baby. He's a cop. And he is responsible in his like supercharged muscle car for keeping the streets of Australia safe. Uh, society is collapsing. Resources are falling apart. Uh, and uh, there are now roving gangs of violent criminals. And the cops are increasingly incapable of doing anything about it. Yeah, we, we actually learn in... Um... Even and even if you hadn't seen Mad Max, which I haven't, uh, he, there is mention in Beyond Thunderdome of his memories from the before time. Yeah, like he knows all of this stuff. So society went to hell in a handbasket pretty recently, real fast. Yeah, like we like t- all, all of a sudden we have like you know mutant fighting pits and uh, <laughs> like that's like those cropped up. Look, you know, if mutant fighting pits just crop up that fast, uh-huh. somebody was planning that before. Somebody was ready to like, like they had the, yeah, the idea what, in their head. They bought the property. Comes, man. Yeah. Like, I built this thing. Yeah. You laughed. You laughed when society was existed. Now who's laughing? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, at, over the course of the film, uh, Max uh, runs afoul of these bad guys. Uh, one of them was played by Hugh Keys Burn. This this is still the first one. This is yeah. still the first one. One of them was played by Hugh Keys Burn, who would end up going on to play a different character in Fury Road. He would end up playing Immortan Joe. Uh, oh, who is cool. one, I think he was one of the great movie villains. But um, basically, Max loses his family, and with that, he decides that he he too is giving up on the concept of civilization, and it just decides to go mad. And basically mm-hmm. turns into a then turns into a monster of vengeance, and at the end of it all, society is over. Uh, a couple of years later, George it's, Miller returned. Eighty one for this. Yeah, only a couple of years. And... Only a couple of years. George Miller returns with Red, Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior, which is called The Road Warrior here in America. Uh, and The Road Warrior is a fucking revelation of a movie. The Road Warrior was phenomenal the road warrior takes place far enough after the collapse of civilization that it's hard to 
tell there ever was one. Mm. It feels like everybody just sort of found the remnants of various like vehicles and weapons. And they just decided to figure out like how to make the most of mm. it. And whatever they used to be doesn't matter anymore. Mm, there's, there's finite fuel left in the world. And now there's mm. bands of heavy metal mutants fighting over what's left. Yeah. There's a small alcove of people who have found uh, a lot of oil, a lot of gasoline. And uh, there's a giant road warrior and a Jason Voorhees mask uh, named, uh, it's, uh, Lord Humongous, yes, which is also a great villain name, uh, and he is basically laying siege to them, and they turn to a drifter named Mad Max, uh, who helps them try to escape with all of their uh, oil. Mm. Um, it, it, it that's be, it, really. That's not a lot to the mm, movie in it, terms of plot. It, it's it, very much uh, mm. you know, sort of Yojimbo or Sanjuro, where just this cool badass comes in, helps everyone with their problems, and gets mm. the fuck out. Yeah, it, it may be telling that my my view of the Road Warrior was colored by a film I saw that came after it called Bellflower, oh, which yeah. was uh, a I think an incredibly striking and very difficult to watch movie. Very um, bleak, yeah, emotionally insanely, bleak. insanely bleak. You know, kind of explores the this this very uh, male mindset that leads to you know fire machines and misogyny and how all those things yeah. are kind of conflated. Um, but in that one, uh, the two main characters kind of worship Lord Humongous, and they name-check him very often, and they've made their own Mad Max car. Yeah. Uh, but I, but it's, yeah, but like you said, it's insanely bleak. So I'm, I'm, sure, I'm watching I'm The sure Road Warrior with that bleakness still, like, that's the thing. lingering like in my mouth. It's interesting to me that you would see The Road Warrior after you saw Bellflower, because I mm. feel like Bellflower, and I haven't seen it since it came out, maybe I owe mm. this one to rewatch, but I remember thinking to myself... If this is a commentary on bleakness, I'm mm. not seeing it. It just feels like bleakness. Right. It feels like the perspective on the Road Warrior is rather immature. And so mm. the Road Warrior itself, I, I wouldn't call it like a wizened, you know, <laughs> you know, grandfatherly fable or anything. No, but, but it's a more of an intelligent mm. adults who are trying to talk about how when society collapses that we end up living our lives in sort of these gigantic bold strokes and what happens when people just decide to be villainous and what mm. happens when people are trying to remain lawful when all around them there is chaos mm. and violence and again there's not a lot of nuance to the storyline it's not tinker taylor soldier spy there's not a lot mm. of plot but the directness of the conflict the specificity of the production design and the characters and easily one of the coolest car chases ever filmed at the end of it which is this giant siege on a caravan and there isn't i don't think there's a single shot in that final chase sequence that is locked down every single camera angle is on a moving car mm. and the stunts are fantastic the action is uncanny it's incredibly striking and with that movie more than mad max george miller pretty much codified the post-apocalyptic genre as we know it. Yeah, well, what post-apocalypse movies tend to look like yeah how they feel what kind mm. of characters you find in them mm. so without without the road warrior we wouldn't have had steel dawn that's true with, uh, patrick swayze <laughs> it's a remake of the movie shane but mm. with patrick swayze in a post-apocalyptic mm. desert and you know what it's not mm. bad uh, and the little boy in that movie mm. he's a musician now i've met him his name is brett hool yeah <laughs> Nice. He was in Steel Dawn. <laughs> Steel Dawn. Not hard to find. No. Worth, if, you, if you like Mad Max movies and you run through uh, them all, you haven't seen Steel mm. Dawn? It's not bad. Yeah, I, I, uh, I watched The Road Warrior, I think, after I had seen Fury Road. Um, it's no battle truck. 
Yeah, well, you remember Battle Truck? What, what is Battle Truck? Well, a, or or mega or mega that. weapon for that matter. Wow. Mega weapon never got his own movie. And and you know what? Mega weapon's time is due. <laughs> Someone, somebody like buy the me- rights to Warrior but, of the Lost World and just make mega weapon make, the movie. Mega weapon the movie. Mega the mega weapon. Uh, so, like a mad scientist hooks up a human brain to mega weapon. <laughs> Just puts it in the truck and and Mega Weapon just goes on merry adventures. If you don't know what we're talking brain. about, if you know what we're talking about. There is a very low budget Mad Max <laughs> knockoff from Italy called Warrior of the Lost mm. World, starring the guy from Paper Chase, <laughs> and uh, it, it was mercilessly made fun of, and honestly, one of the better at Mystery Science Theater three thousand mm. episode. And there's a bit at the end where they're all gonna lay siege to Donald Pleasance's Doom Fortress, and uh, they run into their their ultimate like death machine it's called mega weapon and it's clearly just a dump truck it's a, no it's a very large dump truck it's a very it's large a, dump truck but it's clearly a dump truck but like they're just trying to make it seem really like big. it's not not a roadworthy d- dump truck they only bring it to like huge yeah. construction sites but yeah they put yeah. like big spikes on the front and that yeah. that was their weapon and you know it's the future because they have bumpers like they don't have bumpers like this now <laughs> <laughs> you see they don't have bumpers yeah. like this anyway so the road warrior mm. was a massive success it's an incredibly mm. influential film if you haven't seen it I highly recommend it. It is genuinely great, brilliant action filmmaking. Uh, just sure. St- I'm I'm sorry, Whitney isn't as into it as I am. I love that movie. <laughs> well, I I understand I understand why it's influential, and I understand, and it is incredibly exciting filmmaking. It's just uh, I don't know why, but the, these kinds of movies, these particular kinds of movies, these post-apocalypse movies, recede from me a little bit. Recede? Yeah. How so? Like, I, I I watch them and I appreciate the filmmaking, but I'm never excited while I'm watching them. There, There's well, there's a barrier between me and these Well, let's films. talk about, before we get into Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, mm. let's talk about the post-apocalypse mm. genre for a second, because I think that's mm. an interesting point. What do we get out of it? Like, mm. when you think about certain movie genres, especially the specific ones, not just, like, dramas, but when you think about a specific movie genre... The reason we keep coming back to them, there's often something very primal. Like, um, I feel like the zombie genre, the George Romero zombie genre, mm. relates to a couple of things. The idea uh, that civilization is always one step away from crumbling. Yeah. Um, the idea that what? human beings really are zombies, aren't they? Like, most people just seem to just sort of move with the tide. And we, ourselves, are a little enclave our friends and neighbors and the people that we know we just feel like we're the only people who are really thinking it out man like that's another aspect of it or um you know haunted house movies these are stories Mm -hmm. about places with history and how we respond to that history and how that history affects us what is in Hmm. your eyes what is the post-apocalyptic genre what is the reason for for its popularity i i do appreciate uh well it's it's easy because it taps into our need to ignore the rules we're if we mm. f- if we feel bound in by society, post-apocalypse movies present us a, a new society, yeah. uh, a new version of rules. Who 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 are we now? What can we be? And what can we invent? It's actually a little bit more exciting. We can start afresh. Yeah. It's like a, it's like shaking the etch a sketch. Yeah, we're getting rid of all of middle management, mm. and re- frankly, we're getting rid of all corporate culture altogether. Everyone's yeah, if, just living off the land and exactly. And if, if fighting you feel, for survival, or, there's something kind of primal about that. Lost in modern society, this is a chance for you to regain some kind of power, and that's yeah. very appealing. Um, 
in some some ways it's sort of a fascist fantasy like i think in the a lot of zombie movies not all of them but in a lot of the zombie films it's about the people who can uh like obtain military power and have weapons and do a lot of yeah. violence i can murder all these zombies and that makes me a hero now right it's it's a murder fantasy in the a people lot of ways. who survive yeah. tend to be either badasses sometimes good sometimes mm. bad sometimes chaotic neutral or there are people who have to be protected from badasses yeah. And that tends yeah, to be the, sort of the a, dichotomy. A lore of the wasteland fantasy. So the idea is if you survive, mm. you're either pure in some way mm. or you're super tough. So if you survive, it means you're super tough, right? Or, it means you're bad. It means like every hero fantasy. Or, or you're, you can simply uh, take confidence in the fact that you're very resourceful. And all you yeah. need to do is, you know, if, if you're really good at camping, then <laughs> you'll love the post-apocalypse. Because now all of your skills can, if you're a really good Boy Scout, you can yeah. survive the post-apocalypse. I can see that. Um, I can see that. There's also, a, the, a, but it's also ironically, we're sort of ignoring. It's also a very selfish fantasy if you think about it, because the fantasy oh, no, of post apocalypse you, yeah. you will survive. Millions, if not billions, of people are dead. Yeah, though. you you will you will only on from yeah that. you will only get this if most of the world is dead. Yeah, so it's a very and cynical that, fantasy. That's, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, with the Mad Max films in particular, I feel like humanity is but one generation from extinction. So I'm wondering in reality what, or in the movies in, in that in the course of the movie. Just checking. Yeah, like Mad Max saw it, but things have devolved so quickly that when Mad Max is dead, all of humanity is dead. Yeah, once like Mad the, Max no longer no, remembers no, like it. Like, there's not going to be generations gone. beyond that are going to survive this. There's yeah. no life or or verdancy or, or fertility in this world. It's there's all no just hope. Yeah, it's all just yeah. dry and dead. So mm. why am I following these characters as they're circling the drain? They're, they're not giving me an interesting story. They're not showing me how they're going to survive or what kind of society they're building, other than everything is really kind of warlike and mean now. Mm. The... Uh, there is a, a whole portion of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome that isn't that that I enjoyed, mm-hmm. where um, the entire like the first forty minutes of the movie or so is Mad Max going to um, where the Thunderdome is. Yeah, it's a place called Barter Town, mm-hmm. and it's run by Tina Turner, mm-hmm. playing a great character named Anti Entity. All the all the characters have great names in these movies, yeah, and they all and they're all like decorated in steampunk Borg yeah. getup, and they all have masks and decorations. Yeah. Like, anything they could salvage, they now wear. But the idea is yeah. that uh, anti-entity, mm. before the apocalypse, was nobody. And now mm. she's actually managed to create from the chaos some manner of structure. And so she's created not only a town, but a town that actually functions, because here's a place where everyone actually has it has a barter system. Everyone trades. Everyone is working mm. together to share resources. And it's also the only place in the wasteland that we know of that has power. And the power actually comes that from... Is, that is electricity. Energy, yeah, sorry, yeah. electricity. Yeah, not, not like, you know, political power, but like electricity. Uh, and the power comes from methane gas uh, stemming from pig farming, which mm. is going down on the sort of the subterranean levels mm. of Barter Town. Uh, and it is run by a man named Master, who is a who is a little person, and he basically rules with an iron fist because he is teamed up with a giant named Blaster. So together they are one. Mm. They are Master Blaster. I I I didn't know where that came from until I saw this movie. Oh, weird! It was one of those things where like the the, the pop culture connection finally occurred. It's like, oh, oh yeah, I've heard of this before. 
about like the, the the little person who rides on the shoulders of a big guy and he's called Master Blaster and I didn't know what it was from. Oh yeah, it's from that. So yeah, it's from yeah. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Now I know. Um, this is me being dumb and completely ignorant of these movies. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's this entire sequence where we've, we've established all of this. We meet Tina Turner. Mad Max goes in uh, and... Uh, Tina Turner and, uh, hires him to kill mm. Blaster so mm. that she can control the means of power in Bartertown because otherwise... Uh, Master Blaster just can basically can turn off the power to the town anytime they want. Mm -hmm. And it's basically hurting her image and it's hurting her ability to have order, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is actually interesting because they're not, neither of them are right. No, no, it's actually nothing. Nothing is right in the future. Right. But you know what I mean? Like neither of them are clearly the bad guy here. But everybody in this town is unhappy and they're really uh, cruel and nobody is, this isn't like a utopia. It's just a working city. Yeah. Uh, where everybody's sort of miserable and filthy. And uh, in order to maintain order, they, at the center of all of this is the the titular Thunderdome, yeah. which is just a big bamboo cage where people fight to the death. It looks like one of those like big like half-sphere jungle gyms you used to get as a kid. It looks like the cage that yeah. uh, Taylor was in in Planet of the Apes. It does a little bit, mm. doesn't it? Bigger, but yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's this big dome... It's thunderous. I, I don't know. It actually doesn't have a thunder thing to do with it. Uh, but the idea is this. If disputes are settled in Bartertown uh, by I challenge you to a fight, the fight takes place in the Thunderdome. And, the thunder- can, and you have to kill your opponent in yeah, the Thunderdome. Two men enter. I guess mm-hmm. it's kind of a sexist way of putting it. Two people enter. And then only one of them can leave. And but while you're in there, and you would think and boy, that would be how, enough. Boy, how do they do they chant that enough? Look, I get the concept. It's listen, people love a catchphrase. <laughs> not only that, but when you're in the Thunderdome, it's not just like a gladiator arena. Oh no, 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 no. You are outfitted with bungee cords so that you can fly to various parts <laughs> of the dome to evade being injured, hmm. to grab chainsaws and shit that are hanging from the ceiling. All of that shit's awesome. <laughs> Everything. I, I'm curious because you what, mentioned. What I, I've seen, I think I've seen bungee fights before. Mm-hmm. Like there was a there was a newer movie where they, sure there was like a bungee sword fight or something. You're, I'm sure there was. No. I can't think of it offhand, but yeah, I'm sure there was. Mm. Um, I, I'm curious because mm. you said there's only like half the movie that you were into. Yeah. Was it the Barter Town half or was it the second half? It was the second half. Interesting because for me, mm. everything post Thunderdome. I start losing interest dramatically. Okay. I think before that, I mean, it's not complicated per se, but I actually, I'm completely in love with the absolute incredible detail mm-hmm. of the production design, the costume design, the characterizations, every little character, even if they're incidental in the background, feels like a complete creature. Yeah. That is, yeah. It's, it's like the most Isley Cantina, but it's the whole movie. Like every yeah, single yeah. person there has a full story. I feel completely immersed in this mm-hmm. world. Uh, I, no, it's it's I th- gorgeous. It, I, I'm, it, saying, I'm explaining yeah, but, why I dig this so that we can right. move on and talk about you like the second half. Mm. Like, I think that the overall storyline, though simplistic, is exciting. Mm. Uh, Anti-Entity hires Mad Max to kill Blaster. He has to do it in the Thunderdome. There's a big reveal in the Thunderdome, which takes this incredibly cynical, amoral story and adds another layer to it in which we find out that Mad Max has not lost his humanity, mm. which I thought was really... I remember seeing that as a kid and being mind-blown, like, whoa, man... Mm. Even after all this cool shit, it still matters to have a, f- a fucking soul, doesn't it? I don't, I don't think that has anything to do with Max. He has humanity. He doesn't. 
display anything that he's lost his humanity. No, but he he's never, the only he, humane one. He doesn't want to be in the Thunderdome. He's but not like a, not wanting to be in the Thunderdome is the actually, same as being a decent person. It's called Mad Max, but he's the most sane person in this play. I it's, think that is. I think that's intentional irony. Uh, but at least after the first one, but um, but no, I mean he's sane, but he's also like when they say. Hey, we want you to kill this guy in exchange. We'll give you like camels and gear and everything you want. His first thought is, will it be difficult? Mm. And his second thought is, okay, fine. Mm. His first thought isn't killing is wrong. No. He's, so my point is he's, he's at the very least an antihero. And only in that second half, only after this big reveal, do we realize that he, he does have more lines that he won't cross than maybe anyone else in the movie. And I actually right. think I, it I just sort of, it I just sort of any sense stops that that, the movie dead. That that was a line he would have been tempted to cross before. So yeah. Yeah, I don't want to mm. ruin the bit, but like he was perfectly willing to do it. He came mm. to a realization about someone's character and decided that, no, he can't do this, even though it's convenient. And honestly, it probably won't. It doesn't even fucking matter, really. Mm. But he won't be the one to do it. And I think that is it's important that Max have that moment i think and i think uh and then he ends up uh it's interesting because even though everyone knows he was hired to assassinate a guy and that's totally against the rules the bigger problem is this is barter town you're not allowed to break a deal mm. we entered into a business arrangement mad max did not kill this guy it doesn't matter that i wanted this guy dead what matters is that max broke a deal and when that happens you spin like a wheel of death <laughs> <laughs> and what I love is they spin this wheel and it's a wheel of various consequences. And like mm. one of them is like instant kill and like auntie's choice. My favorite one is spin again, which is very funny. Um, but he ends up having the one it's gulag. That's right. And what they do is they put him on a horse. They put him backwards on a horse. They put like a big helmet thing on his head so that he can't see. Which, and they just, which is a waste of a big mascot head. You think? You think they'd need something like well, that? You know, in, can, interesting decoration. Well, go but out the, there and get it later. Put that on the front of you know whatever yeah. death jalopy. Well, it's a waste built. of a horse, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really a waste of a horse. But like they slap the horse, and the horse goes off into the desert. And the idea is he's probably gonna die, mm. but he doesn't. He's actually rescued by the Lord of the Flies. Yeah, he, well, he's he's rescued by the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. Yeah, it's it's not so much Lord of the Flies because they're not like savage killer kids. No, but they're actually, they're, sort they're of, kids who've been on their own. Though, yeah. at my point, but yeah, I guess and, it is more and the, Peter Pan. The kid uh, enclave of survivors is, I think, far more thoughtful and interesting than mm. simply you know assholes covered in rust. Yeah, tell tell tell, uh, tell him how the story goes. Well, uh, the the story goes he's he's taken into yeah this like little glade where it's nothing but children and they're ruled over by a young woman. Yeah, who is like a teenager. Yeah, she's like a teenager, and she has, uh, because of like the bits bits and bobs of like uh, art and literature and toys that they found. Mm-hmm. There's. Uh, they have sort of constructed this Messiah fantasy and they believe that Mad Max is their Messiah. Yeah. The idea is that there was a plane and it was trying to rescue all the children. The plane crashed and the pilot of the plane was like the only adult who survived. And he said, I will come back for it. And he went up into the wasteland and he never came back and presumably he died. But Mad Max looks just enough like the picture they drew of him on a wall that they think Mad Max is the pilot who's going to help him fly away. Mm. And he's like, I can't do any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> Not this person you're looking for. Well, and I can't and they, fly a plane. And they, and they we don't have a it, working plane. They, they have their own language, which I think is really interesting. Like yeah. there's this weird lingo that they've invented for yeah. the kids that wasn't in Barter Town. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it's like they've got this little microcosm. Yeah, like, like language is like, really, and they actually yeah, have a petri dish just growing on its own. What they have is rather than just a city that's managed to survive, they're actually starting to develop their own unique culture and uh, something where they can actually kind of like grow. And I get the idea that this is where like humanity is going to start to evolve from. Yeah, this is where this, this is the hope this of is, civilization. Yeah, this is where yeah. civilization is going to grow. And indeed, yeah. when he goes into this glade, there's like water and plants. There's actually like life here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas Barter Town was humanity on the way down. Yeah, he, adu- what adult? What were adults doing in mm. the apocalypse? They were finding a way to keep capitalism mm. alive, fight each other to the death, and basically they're destroying themselves, like the last remnants of humanity. Mm. Whereas you put a whole bunch of kids who don't have any of that bullshit already like embedded into their brains, and they're just trying to get by. Yeah, and yeah, I they're building like they're... weird messiah fantasies, but. But they're not harmful. No, they're actually, in fact, there's actually an interesting bit where they've got all of this, like, clutter that they've got from uh, the the airplane. And uh, once Mad Max tries to explain that your fantasies are bullshit, your religion is bullshit, and you're better off staying here, this is the best place in the world, and he's perfectly willing to stay there. Um, The teenage girl can't give up her faith. She believes Mm. that there's something better out there for us because it still sucks here. And when she tries to leave... Mad Max picks up some of the clutter that they just had hanging around his decoration and he reassembles a rifle and picks up bullets that they've been using as like wind chimes. Mm. And then it's just like, they didn't even know that was a gun. Yeah. They didn't even know that was a gun. So, and I feel like not, not only do we get this idea that um, when left to their own devices, people will sort of reinvent humanity in sort of this benevolent way mm-hmm. that's a more appealing concept to me than just people are assholes and will dress in buzzsaws yeah uh but it also gives the mad max series uh, for me at least a little bit more of a broader uh concept mm. that there is, that there's different ways of thinking here rather than just fascism or not fascism sure uh and then uh they decide well wh- where are we going to go and, and this is something that's always bothered me about uh, these post-apocalypse movies. They need to go somewhere. It's the post-apocalypse. Sit down. Well, again, <laughs> just you're, you're there well, already. That's, that's Max's there's argument. There's no there there. That's Max's argument. <laughs> yeah. But the kids don't can't give up on their what they hmm. were told and what their dreams were. So like a, a lot of them just run away in the night trying to find this tomorrow morrow land is what they call it. Hmm. Boy, I got to tell you, man, Spielberg saw this movie when he made Hook. Yeah, that's the, all those Hook lost is all boys. over this movie. Rufio <laughs> is right out of Mad Max Beyond mm-hmm. Thunderdome, dude. Like all of that, the, you would not mm-hmm. have Hook. And I like this movie Beyond better Thunder. than I like Hook. I'll I also like that. this movie better than I like Hook. Um, it, Hook is a there's good stuff in Hook, but it's a big old mess. Um, no, the point is they go off and like to run away and like try to find their Tomorrow Morrowland, and Max has to go get them, but they end up going so far that they're actually so close to Barter Town that. I don't know. You still turn back if you ask me, but Mm. what they decide to do is they decide to rescue master because blaster has died and master is now being like tortured and forced to keep the city going. And so uh, Max decides to use this small band of child warriors to help him like rescue master. And it turns into a big train chase, which is kind of weird. Well, George Miller sure loves his, his, mechanical widgets doesn't he yeah he's like Yamiyazaki for flying except yeah. he, he likes mechanisms yeah the mechanisms yeah. cars engines things that run on fuel and have, yeah. make a lot of smoke yeah. uh, 
that's that's a big part of the road war the parts of the road warrior i remember where yeah. uh, like there's like a, i remember there's like a gyroplane yeah. and there's a big chase at the end with uh, you mentioned there was like a truck and some other things as well this one uh, kind of turns that up to 11 where there's like a hundred dune buggies and this train thing and they're all crashing into each other it's all very elaborate it feels like um gore verbinski would rip this kind of stuff off oh, yeah. for like the climaxes of his action movies yeah uh, and then when you get to Mad Max Fury Road, that's kind of the whole movie. Like yeah. that, that movie barely slows down. It's just all these yeah. big clanking it's just machines, pure momentum, screaming yeah. and shaking. Yeah, I love that movie so much. Um, <laughs> I, I actually want to bring this up because we, we we haven't really discussed it directly. This movie wasn't directed by George Miller. This movie was directed by George Miller and George Ogilvy. Uh, George Ogilvy is the co-director on this film, and he worked in a lot of Australian TV and film. Uh, he directed the movie The Crossing, which uh, I think was Russell Crowe's first movie or was like his big breakout role. Mm. Um, I interviewed George Miller when uh, Fury Road came out, and we talked a bit about, well, a lot of things about the the franchise. We talked a bit about how George Miller always kept the apocalypse itself vague. Okay. He never just said, like, and then there were a bunch of nuclear bombs. It's implied so, that there were nuclear bombs, but was that really it? Was that all there was to it? There was more. But, and but, yeah, that's fine. I don't need to. No, it's fine. I don't need to know that. He was talking about, like, why he kept it vague and how, like, is there continuity between the films and sort of the idea that all of the Mad Max stories are stories that were told about this guy and they've probably been filtered down through like different people telling mm-hmm. them and sort of like so like the, I, if there I are can, any inconsistencies only, uh, it's I, like it's like a legend like Hercules. I, I could only buy that if I thought people were would survive long enough to have legends. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, we do have the first movie turns out is we were uh to hearing the story of I'm sorry. In The Road Warrior, we find out that the narrator of the story was actually a character in the film who was a child. Mm-hmm. So he goes up to be an adult and tell the story to other kids. This movie concludes with children telling okay. the story of Mad Max as well. So at least there's going to be at least one more generation. All right. Um, but uh, we talked about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And apparently one of the big reasons why he needed a co-director was his producing partner for this his... George Miller's producing George partner. Miller's producing partner, uh, whose name was Byron Kennedy was killed in a helicopter crash in 1983 while Mm. they were doing location scouting for Beyond Thunderdome. Oh, gosh. And they had to keep making the movie. That's just that the wheels were turning. Um, And George Miller was grieving. And he was grieving a lot. And he needed the help. And when I talked to him about it, it was actually just, it was really sad. He was talking about how he has almost no memory of shooting this film. Oh, okay. wow. It's just, if you've ever lost someone like really close to you, and I, I and not everyone grieves the same way, but this was true for me. Mm. Like the month after my dad died, total blur. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, I remember little bits and pieces, but I don't remember that month very well. I was just completely distraught the whole time. So George Miller was in a weird place. And so it's kind of fascinating to see this film and how tonally it's a little lighter. It's almost Mad Max for kids, but it's not. Um, and I wonder how much of that is George Ogilvy. I wonder mm-hmm. how much of that was intended from the beginning. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating to think that this is George Miller kind of on autopilot. Hmm. You know, this is George Miller doing the job, but like not yeah. entirely present because he was grieving. Yeah, well, and I, I can see, you know, even though it's an incredibly elaborate world, you look at other films like uh, Return of the Jedi came out at around this time as well. Like, it was like two, one or two years time, yeah. before yeah. this was 85. So it was like two years before this. Yeah. Um, 
So like and uh, yeah. this, there was this big sort of uh, machine at, in work already that was like churning out a lot of these really elaborate backgrounds and background creatures and mm-hmm. effects were really exploding in earnest. Technology was advancing really, really quickly in filmmaking. So even if George Miller is sort of sleepwalking, I, I imagine he's in a, sort of a filmmaking environment where it's easier to sort of stuff the, the frame with a lot of these images. I don't think it's easy, man. Mm. I think it's actually really mm. complicated. I think if you're going to make mm. it, you can stuff it with anything. But what I love about the Mad Max movies, even this one, mm. is that the attention to detail doesn't seem like an urge to fill the screen with clutter. It feels like an, an attention to detail. It feels like an understanding that every single piece, every single thing that has been like reclaimed, rescued, repurposed in these movies for the purpose of post-apocalyptic living had a journey it went on. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about it. It just, everything mm-hmm. feels really lived in. Everything feels like it's part of like a, a an ongoing wave. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, I, I, there's never been like a salvage scene in these movies, has there? Where somebody like... like like goes into an old abandoned house and finds something that they don't recognize and repurposes it immediately. Well, again, these movies don't take place that far away from the death of civilization that that's mm-hmm. quite been the thing. Okay. But kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm I just, I'm, I'm reminded of the scene in, uh, uh, uh mortal engines yeah they, oh yeah they, they have like artifacts from the old world and it's like this is one of their gods and it's a statue of one of the minions yeah that's a funny joke yeah. um yeah i don't think we're, we're quite there but the kids talk about that a little bit mm. and when they talk about like they have like their viewfinder and they think it's an important yeah, historical it's their, record and three view master yeah. yeah like so that they've got that a little bit um they understand how planes work they think planes are magic and if you just need the right pilot and any plane can just go zoom um <laughs> My problem with the second half of this movie... Okay, here's what I like about the second half of this movie. Mm. New ideas. Yeah. New things being introduced to the world. Uh, I find the kids a little annoying, but I would find that true for any like group of 50 children screaming nonsense words over and over again for half an hour. <laughs> I feel like that would get old kind of yeah. fast. Uh, well, but beyond well, and, that, and, that's, and that's seeing, not... That's... Seeing kids in a movie like this kind of... In, interrupts this idea that this is a sort of like a badass world for adolescent boys. I, I don't mind that, but like mm. for me, it just I feel like I I could have done a little less of the screaming. But the big thing for me is that the story stops with Thunderdome, mm. and it doesn't even pick up really or start a new story for a while. It's like he's confused for this Messiah, and they explain that to him for a long time. And then he explains that he's not. And there's a debate about that. And then some of the kids don't believe it. And they try to leave. But then mm-hmm. they don't leave. But then they do. And then Max doesn't want to go get them. And then Max does go get See, them. I, and, then I, they, that's, and all that's of that way, stuff is just... way more interesting than just... The first part of the movie felt like we're just sort of biding our time until the story starts. We haven't seen anything yet. We're just waiting for this part to end so we can wait for the film to start. See, I just it's all the... just it's all just okay. I've I've seen this post-apocalyptic stuff. I've seen Thunderdomes before. <laughs> well, you have <laughs> now because yeah. th- because Beyond Thunderdome existed in the first place. I suppose so. You had to reverse engineer that thinking a little bit. Well, a little I mean, bit of credit, I think. Escape from New York came before this movie, and there's a Thunderdome scene in Escape there's from not New York. A, there's not a Thunderdome scene. There's they're a, gladi- a, they're there's a, a gladiator. wrestling ring. That's a gladiator arena. It's oh, not a Thunderdome. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's not a Thunderdome <laughs> unless it's an actual fucking dome. Oh, all right, sorry. Okay? Splitting hairs here. What? Post-apocalypse gladiatorial combat. I've yeah. seen a lot of that, that from films That's that a, come before listen, Beyond Thunderdome. Listen, listen, listen. 
If it's not a, th- but prior to Thunder Domes, they were Thunder Places. Okay, well, I've seen Thunder Place scenes. <laughs> yes. Thunder Dome was special. Snake Bliskin fought in a Thunder Place. <laughs> yes, and it was fine. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying, Thunder Dome, once you add bungee cords in a dome and chainsaws, it's a little different, and I think you get a little credit. Um, in in the, the guy that... Uh, yeah, Kurt Russell fought in Escape from New York. Yeah, it's like this. It's like the seven and a half foot tall wrestler guy. It looks like a bat. Looks like a, the, the end boss from a Final Fight level. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and the actor is just huge. Like I think he was an actual wrestler, and yeah. uh, and uh, he wasn't given like fight choreography or anything. He was just trying to hit Kurt Russell with a club, <laughs> and and all he had as a shield is like a trash can lid. I and there's know. scenes in that where he's like legitimately defending his life. Yeah. And the story goes, John Carpenter tells this story that uh, he actually approached this wrestler guy and say, you're going a little too tough on me. And the wrestler's like, hey, yeah, I am. And like, he's being a complete dick about it. <laughs> and Kurt Russell, like, kind of leaned close and says, hey. And then he, like, but keeping eye contact, leaned his, like, pushed his hand forward and flicked him in the testicles. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, don't do that. And, and he was good after that. <laughs> like, oh, God. That's um, just the, the sight of Kurt Russell like hitting this guy in the crotch is just hilarious. That man. is um, it's a lot of things I don't approve of. In that <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of workplace fiascos I think. Yeah, going well, I mean, the, the, that uh, was that was the sort of seat of the pants uh, world of John Carpenter. Fair enough. Um, anyway, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I this movie was met with I think mixed reviews when it came out I think a lot of people appreciate the world Ebert if memory serves loved this movie yeah. he thought it was just really just transportive and fascinating and I think again in terms of making you travel to new places this mm-hmm. is one of those amazing movies that uh, is just it doesn't feel like a set mm-hmm. you know it doesn't feel like we, we made this in a studio or it's green screen or mm-hmm. anything like that it feels like this is the apocalypse. This is what it looks like. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I think that's uncanny. Um, some great some great small character work in here. Some incredible stunts. There's this one stunt in the train chase at the end where there's this one there's this one minion of anti-entity who just cannot die. Like <laughs> you get thrown off a building or get thrown into like a pit full of man-eating mm-hmm. pigs or whatever, and I'll always emerge somehow. And there's this incredible bit where they're chasing down this high-speed train. And there's a bunch of cars, and this guy jumps from car to car to car to car in, like, one mm. shot. Mm. And you're like, there's no fucking way that that was yeah, safe. There's, there's no re- fucking way. That's yeah, insane. I mean, this, this was the wild, wild and hairy world of Australian stunt filmmaking, yeah. where they just did the... Is there a way we can make that more dangerous? <laughs> oh can can we actually get really close to killing yeah. someone? We also need to talk about how this movie has easily the best car in any post-apocalyptic movie. There's a car that Mad Max drives that's like a really low roadster, but it is covered with like cowhide. So it looks like a black <laughs> yeah. and white moo cow. Yeah, yeah. And it's the stupidest thing. And they keep him in that car for a while. Like, it's not just like yeah, he's in I, the car and he crashes it and gets a new one. Like, no, he's that's his car for like a solid five minutes. I, I, I like that. I like that's that, fun, that they're, right? try, they're, they're not trying to make the hero or the, the heroes look cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, now that all is said and done, hmm. how, would you, if, how, how would you compare hmm. Beyond Thunderdome to Road Warrior and Fury Road? Hmm. Is this, do you think this is the best one? Do you think it's the worst? What do you think? Uh, they're, they're the same. They're all the same. They're all the same movie. Yeah. Nothing, no, no differences whatsoever between them. 
I mean, they're they're different movies, but I I feel about them the same way. Okay. So whatever, basically. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get Rita. I don't even know if you liked them or not. Sure, sure, they're fine. I I have I have nothing passionate to add or to okay. detract from them. Just a solid um, middle of the road. They are they are fine, and uh-huh. I, I don't want to say anything more. <laughs> okay. I, I know the, how just a these cob salad of a movie. I, I know how these films are uh, very highly held. The regard that these films are held in, especially mm. the Road Warrior and especially Fury Road. Uh, I've seen the Road Warrior once. Um, maybe I need to watch it again because there's a lot I don't remember about the movie. Okay. Uh, I did, and I did watch it under duress, which is you know it doesn't matter. Always how a good, good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. If if you watch a movie under duress, it doesn't matter how good it is. You're going to kind of resent yeah. it a you're little like, bit. You're like one of those saw devices, yeah, and if you blink like, for too long, it like chops your head off. So you got to watch a, the Road Warrior. It's like a lot of friend. A lot of friends of mine had to watch 2001: A Space Odyssey in school, and for them it was homework. It's like, yeah, and as a result, homework, it's not and, and as and yeah. as a result, I have a lot of friends who really hate 2001: A Space Odyssey because so, they resent it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's 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 one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. No, it's, no. How, uh, how you see things does matter. Yeah. So I, matter. I I need to revisit the Road Warrior. Um, I've said this before about Fury Road. Uh, I, it came out, and I liked it a lot. Uh, the you said that this one has that moo cow car. Um, I don't think that holds a candle to heavy metal speaker car with drums and fire guitar player. Okay, you're right, you're right. The Moo Cow uh, car is a close second. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. The, That's the, a close second. The, the traveling flaming guar concert car uh, kind of has it beat. With the Duff Warrior. That's the, the name of that guy. He's the Duff Warrior. The Duff Warrior. He's the guy with the, the flame-throwing guitar. Yeah. That's the Duff Warrior. Yeah, I, re- yeah. I remember watching it. It's like, it's moving really fast. I'm not really certain what's going on here. What am I supposed to be feeling all this? When I saw the guy let the flamethrower guitar, I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah. This I'm, is a heavy I'm, metal I'm, album cover, but it's a yeah, movie. Yeah. I, 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 I'm getting it now. <laughs> uh, I, I saw it like four or five more times and then I, I just something snapped in my brain and I kind of put it aside and I, I was done with it then it's like it, I, I can't and I don't think about it much anymore okay so uh, I, I there's just something about me about my personal makeup and I have theories as to what it is why I'm not being so in, not not so deeply enamored of this particular series of films that other people are very very fond of is this only you want to talk about or is it, or is it like it's not really no, you no want to talk it's about just it's very yeah. personal okay it's just uh, I've, now I've, now i've seen them and okay. i feel like i'm i uh, i'm educated I, I would i would argue and i think because the road warrior and beyond thunderdome and mm. fury road are very experiential movies mm. they're very much about um incident and action and momentum and gears mm. turning if i were to guess i would say that you would probably like mad max one the most okay because it is a story and okay. because it is it's about the actual downfall of things and not just living in the in the mm. in the no, consequences it's li- yeah it's like yeah. um I, I i get to the end of a mad max movie and i don't know where we're gonna go from here yeah and it, and it's not in that sort of the world is a mystery or we're kind of lost in this new universe kind of tone. It's like, really? oh, what's and, the point? And yeah. now we can go on to the next thing. But what next thing? They haven't established what it is, yeah. what, what is out I, there in the world, I, I how was, they can survive. I feel especially that way with uh, like, I feel like I always feel like that way with Max in particular, especially at the end of this movie. Like Max mm. is not in a great place at the end of this movie. Yeah. Like he's not like, you know, on the road again, everything's going to go fine. Like, no, it's kind of rough. Um, 
yeah, revisiting this movie, I, 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 there's so much I like about it. And it's definitely worth seeing, but for me, this is <sighs> when it comes to its ideas, it's one of the best in the series. But I think mm-hmm. when it comes to the actual narrative and the pacing and the, I actually think it's the it's the one I like the least because I just think it's really mm-hmm. uneven, which is from what I understand common consensus. It's probably yeah. the consensus. I don't know. Um, these things kind of change over time. Like I remember when I was a kid. The general consensus was that of the two Star Wars sequels that we had at the time, Empire and Jedi, Jedi was the good one. Oh. And it wasn't until around the 90s sometime, like when I was in like junior high and high school, mm-hmm. that the general consensus, well, we, we liked them both, but like the, the general consensus was that Empire was way better than Jedi. Yeah, that, um, that, and that that yeah that attitude didn't rise up until the mid nineties. Yeah, I think so. I think it didn't. I think that became more popular. And there's always going to be people who prefer one or the other, but like just the general consensus mm-hmm. notion that shifts over time. Yeah, and there's probably going to come a time when like all people are going to say like, hey, you know the Star Wars prequels, Phantom Menace is the good one, or they're going to say like, hey, you know those like Star Wars sequels, you know how like Last Jedi was really divisive. Now it's the good one yeah, or rise those, of skywalker is the good one it's gonna it, it evolves it's, it's over time change. Uh, it's gonna evolve as tastes indeed, evolve uh, as people approach it from different angles here's, and new generations. Uh, here's some evidence of that in the movie clerks there's a line of dialogue oh where, yeah, yeah. Uh, um uh randall asks dante which is your favorite uh, between empire, empire strikes back and return of the jedi and he says the empire strikes back and his response is blasphemy yeah like that's going you're, against you're, the grain. Yeah, yeah. the, the, the grain was Return of the Jedi was the good yeah, one. Because it's the big dramatic conclusion. It's mm. Luke uh, fighting Vader to the death. It's got a lot of cool stuff in that movie. No one's yeah, can't yeah. argue that. So, um, yeah, for me, this is this mm. is not my favorite. There may come a time when people decide this is the good one. I don't know. But for me, nah, not my favorite. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with more movies, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. There are more uh, new films open. I don't know what's and coming out. Some good, I hope. I've already seen a couple, so yeah. we're going to at least be reviewing a Ride or Die, which okay. is a um, Japanese lesbian violence romance movie. Okay. Uh, it's coming out on Netflix. And a, a film called Hope, uh, which is a cancer drama from Norway. Oh, dear. So I've seen those two. All right. Well, okay. So we're definitely going to be reviewing those and probably more as well. And uh, if you want to head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. I was under the weather this weekend, so this episode's coming out later than usual. The poll might be closed by the time uh, uh, this episode goes live. But we have a new one every week. So if you haven't joined up again, please do. You can vote every single week. Uh, but the nominees uh, are for comedies on Amazon Prime. And last I checked, uh, Steven Spielberg's The Terminal was mm. and it had a comfy lead. So I suspect oh, okay. we're going to be reviewing that. Right. Uh, the Terminal is a comedy starring Tom Hanks uh, as a man from a from a country that, while he is in midair in a plane, ceases to exist, and now he is not allowed to return home, nor is he allowed to move to America. So he has, so to, he has stay to stay in the airport, in the airport which is admittedly and an stay interesting there and, idea. And, li- and live at the airport. Admittedly, an interesting idea. I'm curious how that plays out. I never actually saw that one. It's not one of the Spielberg movies everybody watched. So, um, anyway, that's it. So, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to go to patreoncom network, you can vote for future episodes. We also have a ton of exclusive stuff over there, including podcasts dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever made. 
Every single episode of the 1960s Batman. Every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. All the movies that are not on Disney+, Plus, but theoretically should be, and we don't know why they're missing. We have commentary tracks. We're going to do one later this month for Batman and Robin. Uh, and uh, other stuff as well. Hmm. So it's a, it's a cacophony of stuff. Uh, you can also email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is our email address. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to ask us questions, take us to task, disagree with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might read your email on an upcoming mm-hmm. episode of We've Got Mail, a podcast right here at this channel. But please write in and tell me how I'm wrong, wrong, wrong about the, the Mad Max movies. You, what, they, what they provide to you. you. You may be wrong. You may mm-hmm. not be wrong. But you're being very diplomatic about it. You're not saying they suck or anything. You're, just, no, you're, you're very no, comfortably no. saying they're not for you. Uh, which which is curious because they should be. This is yeah. something that I should be connecting to. I, I kinda, I, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised. Exactly I know you're, sure you're, I'm, you're I'm not, not typically into like macho stuff, but mm. I feel like Mad Max isn't really about posturing. No, and and know? indeed, uh, you know, the whole post-apocalyptic thing, you know, the subgenius porn element of it. Like, let's just watch humanity crumble. That's yeah. fun to me. I love the the nihilist garbage. Yeah, that's why I thought that stuff was really great. And yeah. uh, it, it's weird that the the bit I'm connecting with in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is like the most the more hopeful elements of it. Maybe you're just growing up. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Maybe, if I had seen these movies when I was 15, maybe I would love them. But maybe. yeah, I, I didn't come at them until I was in my 30s. Anyway, uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And of course, soap. And by by William soap. Yeah, Mil, uh, William and M. Lapis de Silva soap. Yes, but you have special soap. That I you have designed spe- yourself. I have a few soaps. Hmm. We have a soap store, by the way. It's on Etsy. If you look for Salt Cat Soap, Salt Cat Soap is also our uh, Twitter and Instagram handle for the store. Look for the logo. Look for the logo of Luca, uh, who is biting soap in the in the logo. He doesn't do it in real life. Um, but yeah, we sell a ton of like hand-designed soaps, and many of them are really gorgeous and exciting and smell incredible. And I've made a few as well, including a shave bar, which is actually kind of an artistic expression for me because I'm using it to talk about sort of uh, how I feel about, you know, as, as men grow older, we are we get things about our hair like commercials <laughs> like commercials start being marketed to us like if you lose your hair you're less than a man and i'm like what the no. fuck spotify when did this happen are you into women well they're not gonna talk to you yeah and i'm like what the hell are you talking about so mm. the the coloring is sort of like sh- shaded like uh my hair color but there's also gray streaks in it and um uh and it uh, smells like espresso and honey these sort of mature Ooh. smells that are about sort of getting comfortable with you know, your hair as you get old. I don't know. It makes sense to me. But um, in any case, it lathers up really beautifully and you can use it to shave. So I highly recommend you do. Uh, But there's other stuff there as well. And uh, I hope uh, you all enjoy it. Thank you for everybody who's already purchased some. Uh, And uh, yeah, don't forget Mother's Day, Father's Day is coming up. We got cool soaps. So thank you very much. Etsy. Salt Cat Soap. And uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. So thank you everybody for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?